Welcome, listeners, to the next chapter of Southern Grimoire. I'm your host, K.D. Burr. The month of October is undeniably my favorite time of year. I can dress how I like to without raising any eyebrows and cover my yard with skeletons, tombstones, and cobwebs. It's also a fantastic time for my research. Many publications get in the spirit of the season, compiling lists of bizarre crimes and unsolved mysteries. If you're willing to dig a little deeper, and if you know where to look, you can find enough spooky reading to last well into November. This week on Southern Grimoire, I have a selection of cases I find particularly haunting, those of unexplained disappearances and unsolved deaths. This chapter of the grimoire contains descriptions of criminal activity and violence, and may be unsuitable for younger listeners. The first story I want to share is one I grew up hearing about. My mother was notoriously strict, with a detailed reason behind every activity she discouraged me from doing. I was not allowed to learn to skate because she had broken her arm. I was not allowed to jump on trampolines for similar reasons. Playing with balloons was a choking hazard, and chewing gum would just get caught in my long hair. I wasn't allowed to go anywhere without an adult, and was rarely allowed to venture far from my front yard without her eagle eye on my back. The reason for this, however, was a little more sinister than your average parental anxiety. When my mother was young, she lived in Fort Worth, Texas. In December of 1974, a young girl named Julie Ann Mosley, along with two other girls, vanished without a trace from a local shopping mall. My mother was lab partners with Julianne's older sister, and the senselessness of the crime had traumatized her. Just two days before Christmas, 14-year-old Lisa Renee Wilson and her friend, 17-year-old Rachel Trillica, decided to go shopping at Seminary South Shopping Center. Rachel drove to Renee's grandmother's house to pick her up, and nine-year-old Julianne Mosley begged to come along too. Julianne and her family lived across from Renee's grandmother, and the Wilson family knew them well. Renee dated Julianne's older brother Terry, and on the morning of the girl's disappearance, Terry allegedly gave Renee a promise ring. They were supposed to attend a Christmas party together that night, and Renee promised the impromptu shopping trip wouldn't take very long. Terry says that was the last time he ever saw Renee Wilson. What happened during their shopping trip is a mystery, and witness statements spark more confusion rather than clarity. One man said he saw someone forcing a young girl into a van. When he attempted to intervene, he was told that the situation was a family dispute. A woman reported that she'd seen the girls climbing into a pickup truck, and yet another said three girls matching the descriptions of Rachel, Renee, and Julianne had been talking to mall security in the parking lot. Which of these accounts, if any, is the truth? The day after the girls vanished, a mysterious letter arrived for young Rachel's husband. There was no return address, and the letter was written to Thomas, which immediately struck the man as being odd. 
Rachel always called him Tommy. The letter said, I know I'm going to catch it, but we just had to get away. We're going to Houston, see you in about a week. The car is in Sears' upper lot. Love, Rachel. Neither Tommy nor Rachel's mother, Fran, believe the handwriting belonged to Rachel. But true to the letter, her car was found parked near Sears, locked and full of Christmas presents purchased at the shopping center. There was no sign of the girls anywhere. It was another twist in an already complicated case. Rachel's older sister, Deborah Hopper, had previously been engaged to Rachel's husband, Tommy. In fact, that's how they had met. At that time, Tommy was in his early 20s, and he had already been married and divorced, with a two-year-old son. But Rachel had fallen hard and fast for the handsome Tommy, and they were quickly married. About six months into their union, Deborah, citing relationship issues, moved in with the newlyweds. She was still living with them when Rachel disappeared, and said that she was even invited along on the fateful shopping trip, but declined. Witnesses claim to have seen Rachel Trillica and Renee Wilson after they disappeared. Private investigator Dan James said he believed that someone manufactured the letter and other evidence to confuse authorities, and that it's likely only Rachel Trillica is still alive. I believe that a person facilitates and maintains an effort to keep Rachel away from Fort Worth, James said in an interview. I believe that Renee Wilson is not alive. I believe that something dreadfully wrong, and probably a fatality, occurred involving Julianne Mosley. Many suspect Rachel's sister Deborah is involved in the girl's disappearance. Though she contacted the media to proclaim her innocence, she refused to cooperate with the Fort Worth Police Department, wouldn't answer questions during the initial investigation, and declined to submit for polygraph testing. Authorities have stated they are actively looking at five different suspects, and they have DNA evidence found on the envelope of the mysterious letter. They believe that the three girls most likely left the mall with someone they knew and were harmed later at another location. They still have hope that this cold case will be solved. Suspected serial killer James Mitchell de Bardeleben lived just a half mile from Rachel and Tommy's home and has been considered a person of interest in the case. De Bardeleben was known as the mall passer because of his habit of spending large amounts of counterfeit money in shopping malls across the country. He was also a convicted kidnapper and rapist, and was suspected to be involved in several brutal homicides. He died in prison in 2011, without ever admitting involvement in the Fort Worth trio case. This next story also involves three missing women, but is even more complex. On Halloween night in 2001, 21-year-old student Cindy Song, dressed as a bunny, went out with two girlfriends to celebrate. They drank and partied together until the bars closed, and then hung out at a friend's house. Cindy was dropped off at her apartment around 4 a.m. and has never been seen since. After searching the apartment, the police initially suspected that Cindy was a runaway and had left of her own accord. They found no signs of a struggle, and nothing notable appeared to be missing, 
But Cindy's friends immediately knew that something was wrong. What she had left behind was more telling. The fake eyelashes she had worn out that night were on the bathroom sink. Her cell phone and the backpack she always carried were in the apartment as well. But there was no trace of Cindy's song. Police and volunteers searched for weeks but found no clues. They deduced that she had left her apartment voluntarily, locking the door behind her. Her friends told authorities that it wouldn't have been unusual for Cindy to run out to the gas station for a drink or a snack, but no one recalls seeing her after she was dropped off. Five months before Cindy had vanished, another Pennsylvania woman had gone missing. Jennifer Barzalowski, just 18 years old, was last seen in the company of her sister's boyfriend, Stephen Martin. Martin says he dropped Jennifer off outside of a bar in Edwardsville, Pennsylvania on June 23rd, but no evidence has ever been found to support his claim. Jennifer's family and friends were devastated, including close friend Felicia Thomas. Felicia was deeply impacted by Jennifer's case, to the point that she vowed to find whoever was responsible. Felicia began investigating leads and theories on her own, asking questions around town, and making connections with people who knew the last person to see Jennifer Barzalowski, Stephen Martin. One of these people was career criminal Hugo Selinski, who was a neighbor and friend of Martin's. Felicia's mother believes that she got too close to Selinski and his crew and may have learned something she shouldn't have. Selinski certainly wasn't a man to be trifled with. In 2002, Hugo Selinski murdered Michael Kurkowski and his fiancée Tammy Fassett. Kurkowski was a pharmacist involved in an illegal drug ring and the trade brought in thousands of dollars. The official story presented to the media was that Selinski wanted to scam the couple out of money they had hidden away and he killed them once he found out where they stashed the cash. But Selinski told authorities a slightly different story. He admitted to taking Krakowski's money and to killing him, but the reason was slightly more complicated. Selinski claimed that he and Krakowski were friends and partners in crime. He said that in the early morning hours of November 1st, 2001, he and Krakowski were driving together when they saw a young woman dressed in a bunny costume walking alone. They assumed she was a prostitute and wouldn't be missed. The two men kidnapped her and killed her, burying her body in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. When Selinski found that Krakowski had kept her bunny ears as a gruesome souvenir, he became enraged and decided that Krakowski would have to pay for what he had done. Of course, Krakowski could neither confirm nor deny the story, considering he was buried in Selinski's backyard. When all was said and done, at least five sets of badly burned remains were found in the yard. Authorities said the bones were so charred, it was impossible to tell exactly how many people had come to rest there. Though police were hopeful, no trace of Cindy Song or Jennifer Barzalowski was found. Hugo Selinski was arrested and is still in prison today. 
After Selinsky's arrest, Felicia Thomas continued to balance her daily responsibilities with her amateur investigation. She was convinced her friend's disappearance was somehow connected to Selinsky and his crew. In February of 2004, Felicia Thomas went missing. According to Pennsylvania State Trooper Tom Kelly, Felicia went to a party the night she disappeared. Whether the party was a break from her tireless investigation or was an integral part of it is unknown. She left that party with Stephen Martin and another male, Trooper Kelly said. The other male was dropped off and her and Stephen Martin continued on their way. Felicia Thomas was never to be seen again. I think there's a lot of peculiarities. Steve Martin was the last person to be seen with both people, and both people ran in the same circles of friends. Hundreds of volunteers came out to aid the police in the search for Felicia Thomas, but after months, they came up empty-handed. In 2010, two teenagers riding ATVs came upon a gruesome discovery out in a ravine, a human skull. Felicia's mother was hopeful that they had found her daughter, but the dental records came back with a different match, Jennifer Barzalowski. It's important to note that the ravine was less than one mile from Stephen Martin's home. Authorities never got the chance to seriously investigate Stephen Martin for the death of Jennifer Barzalowski or the disappearance of Felicia Thomas. After being arrested for an unrelated charge, Martin committed suicide in his prison cell, taking all his secrets to the grave. We may never know exactly what happened to Cindy, Jennifer, or Felicia. Four years after Jennifer's skull was found, another macabre discovery was made in rural Pennsylvania. A young boy got off the school bus near the town of Economy and began his regular walk home. He wandered through the fields, taking his time, when he spotted something odd. As he drew closer, he realized it was a human head. It was so lifelike, the boy assumed at first it was fake. But the glowering expression and pursed mouth had been preserved by a careful embalming process. Inside the eye sockets, someone had placed two red rubber balls, the kind you can buy in the coin-operated machines outside most gas stations. The head appeared to be female, with carefully styled white curls. The neck had been crudely sawed through. The boy, terrified, screamed and ran for help. After a thorough search of the area, no other remains were found, and authorities weren't even certain a crime had occurred. All they knew for sure is that she was embalmed, but there was no way to tell whether it had been done by a licensed professional or a sinister hobbyist. The level of preservation was expert, but the use of the red rubber balls gave them pause. More distressing was the fact that no funeral homes or morgues in the state were missing any heads. Who was this Jane Doe, and where on earth did she come from? Forensic testing done on the head offered some clues, but no clear answers. Investigators conducted isotope testing on the remains. Each person has unique isotopes in their body from the water they drink and the food they eat, 
and certain isotopes can even indicate where a person lived. The forensic results showed that Jane Doe spent the last seven months of her life traveling frequently and staying in multiple locations, ranging from Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, Maryland, and New York. The tests also indicated that she had most likely grown up in western Pennsylvania, near Beaver County. Toxicology tested positive for both lidocaine and atropine, indicating that she most likely suffered from heart problems and had been under medical care in the recent past. She was Caucasian and at least 50 years old. While the outer skin of the neck was jagged and crudely cut, the innermost portions seemed to have been sliced with almost surgical precision. Attempts to discover Jane Doe's identity have been unsuccessful. Authorities are baffled, unsure whether this is evidence of a murder, elder abuse, mortuary incompetence, or something even stranger. One thing police agree on is the fact that the head was almost certainly carefully placed in the field. If it was thrown or fell out of a vehicle, it is unlikely that the red rubber balls would have remained intact in the eye sockets. But who would place it there, and why? Where are the rest of Jane Doe's remains? It's a mystery the small town of Economy hopes will someday be solved. The next unexplained death in this chapter of the grimoire is the curious case of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna. At the time of his death, Luna had been hard at work on a drug-related case, and things weren't going well. Two Baltimore-based dealers were accused of heroin distribution, and one of them was facing a murder charge. The prosecution's star witness was a former heroin dealer, a man named Warren Grace who had turned into a paid snitch for the FBI. But Grace had broken the terms of his deal, and in the process, broken the law. Luna didn't disclose this information, and when it came out in trial, the defense attorneys had a field day. On December 3, 2003, Luna had decided his best course of action was to offer a plea deal. He worked late into the night, holed up in his office hammering out the terms of the agreement. Very abruptly, he got up and left. It's not known what caused him to leave his office but he left his cell phone and glasses, which he needed to drive, on his desk. His car was clocked leaving the courthouse parking lot at 11.38 p.m. Luna's car traveled down the I-95 into Delaware, and he, or someone driving his vehicle, used Luna's turnpike pass. From that point on, toll tickets were purchased instead. At 12.57 a.m., $200 was withdrawn from Luna's bank account at an ATM near Newark, Delaware. At 2.47, Luna's car crossed the Delaware toll bridge to the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and at 3.20 a.m., his debit card was charged for gas. At 4.04 a.m., his car exited the Turnpike. This particular toll ticket was found to have a smear of Luna's blood on it, suggesting that he had already been injured to some extent. At 5.30 a.m., an employee of the Pennsylvania Senesig and Weaver Well Drilling Company noticed a car in the stream behind the building.
The front end was submerged in the water, and blood was smeared over the driver's side door and the front left panel. Jonathan Luna was dead, face down in the stream, lying underneath the still-running car. He had been stabbed 36 times, but ultimately his cause of death was found to be drowning. A large pool of blood was found in the rear of the vehicle, suggesting that, for at least part of the ride, someone other than Luna had been driving. For reasons unknown, the FBI seemed very keen on pushing the case as a suicide, but former Lancaster County Coroner Dr. Barry Walp refused. Defensive wounds on Luna's hands and slashes on his throat and scrotum were completely inconsistent with suicide. Walp's successor, Dr. Gary Kirchner, was allegedly pressured to change the ruling from homicide to suicide, but he too refused. In the initial investigation, authorities reported they could find no murder weapon. But over six weeks later, they announced that the 36 stab wounds had most likely been inflicted with Luna's own penknife. In the weeks following Luna's death, his character was publicly attacked in the media, with no solid evidence offered to corroborate the claims. Author Bill Kiesling, who wrote a book on the case, called it a well-timed hit job on Luna's reputation. Several attorneys who worked with Jonathan Luna were appalled by the coverage and believed that the stories of scandal and impropriety were fed to news outlets by federal agents. But why? Some have alleged that Luna double-crossed the mob, or made himself a target of one of Baltimore's notorious gangs. Others think he may have gone against the FBI or threatened their business interests. One thing is certain, and that is the fact that the investigation into his death was subpar at best. What really happened to Jonathan Luna? Who would be capable of pulling off the murder of a high-profile federal prosecutor? Who doesn't want the truth to get out? Perhaps time will tell. The final story in this chapter of the grimoire is one that has always left me feeling unsettled. A Canadian woman named Cindy James left her husband and suddenly found herself in the middle of her own personal psychological thriller. Over the period of six years, Cindy reported nearly 100 terrifying incidents of abuse, stalking, and harassment. She was plagued by mysterious phone calls, bizarre notes, damaged property, and late-night prowlers. On several occasions, Cindy was physically attacked. One evening, a friend of Cindy's stopped by for a visit and found her outside, scared and disoriented with a nylon stocking tied around her neck. She said that someone had ambushed her as she was walking toward her garage. On another occasion, a private investigator Cindy had hired found her unconscious in her home, with a paring knife stabbed through her hand. Sometime later, she was found in a ditch, covered in cuts and bruises and suffering from hypothermia. She had no memory of how she had gotten there. These incidents, along with hundreds of threatening phone calls, occurred regularly for years. Here is an excerpt from one of the phone calls. Make of it what you will. 
The police, who had initially considered Cindy's husband may have been involved, never found any evidence to tie him, or anyone else, to the complaints. When they set up 24-hour surveillance of Cindy's house, no incidents would occur. As soon as the detail was lifted, the campaign of terror would begin again. The police began to doubt her claims, and eventually Cindy admitted to her family that she knew more than what she had shared with police, but she was too scared to divulge more. On May 25, 1989, Cindy James disappeared. Her car was found, blood smeared on the driver's side door. It was locked, with groceries clearly visible inside, but there was no sign of Cindy. Two weeks later, her decomposing body was found, lying in front of an abandoned house. Her neck was obscured by a tightly wrapped black stocking. Her hands and feet had been tied up, bound together behind her back. At first glance, the scene seemed to suggest a homicide, but autopsy results revealed the cause of death to be an overdose of morphine. Police thought that Cindy had committed suicide, but her family and friends argued there was no way Cindy could have tied herself up and taken a lethal dose of drugs. The coroner ultimately ruled that she had died of an unknown event. What happened to Cindy James? Was she murdered? Was she mentally ill? Did she commit suicide or did she kill herself by mistake while orchestrating an elaborate ruse? If she did fabricate her claims of stalking and abuse, why? And why for so many years? To this day, no evidence has ever been found to shed light on the mystery, but Cindy's family is still hopeful that the answer is out there and that her killer will someday be brought to justice. That's all for this chapter of Southern Grimoire. I hope that you'll join me next time. For more information on these cases and many more, find me on Instagram at Southern Grimoire or follow my Facebook page. Until next time, listeners, remember, there is no darkness that cannot be overcome by light.